Thank you very much for having me. It's a really great pleasure to be here and to be giving this talk. Um, it's also actually my great pleasure to be doing this with uh, Kenji Shibuya, uh, who I've known, now, I think, for now about five years, right, when you came back to Japan. He will, I think, introduce himself better than I can do it, but he is a very unusual uh, professor, for sure. He's a very unusual doctor. He's a very unusual individual. Uh, and he really has unusual perspectives, very refreshing perspectives. And to be doing this together with him is great. We actually worked together for one of my clients um, a couple of years ago. And that's really how I got to know him. We worked uh, for a prefecture. I can even say who because it's public knowledge, Hiroshima Prefecture. Uh, and uh, and uh, this was a really great collaboration at the time, and I'm, I'm glad we are continuing that now, a few years later here uh, in, in front of you. Um, I will focus my, uh, my talk on more the, uh, the quality of healthcare discussion than the financial aspects. Sustainability certainly has two dimensions. You know, one is the sheer financial sustainability of the, of the system. Uh, the other one is the quality. They are clearly interlinked. Uh, I, I'll focus um, my remarks mostly on the qualitative side, which is also what, what Kenji is going to pick up on. Uh, but I'm happy in the discussion to also talk more about the, the, the finance. I'd like to start uh, you know, by, by noting that um, we don't have that many Japanese in the room, but most Japanese tend to be quite proud of their system. Uh, maybe that's not so unusual. Maybe if you go to Germany, Germans are proud of the German healthcare system, Americans of the American one. Um, but Japanese like to point to the fact, you know, it's easy to go to a doctor anytime, anywhere. You know, you, you get seen, you get treated, um, and it doesn't actually cost that much. And that uh, certainly the, the cost part is, is true. Um, but, you know, if you look under the lid, actually you see a lot of um, concerns about the sustainability of what you have today. And I would also actually say I'm not sure you are actually getting as good health care as the country really deserves, given how developed it is. Uh, and I, um, what is behind that, and I'll explain that a bit uh, later, is I think a poor balance of how the system is actually organized, who has control over what. Mm, that, there are many historical reasons for that, but they haven't been addressed in more recent modern times in the way you would think they should have been addressed. And of course there are political reasons for that that we can, we can debate later. Um, so starting off with a, a bit more of a view of um, you know, what's good about uh, Japan or what seems good about Japan, I should say, uh, we certainly have one of the highest life expectancies in the world. Uh, that's fantastic. We have also relatively low disease incidence. So even as people grow older, they tend to be actually healthier than in other countries. And there is very hard data for that. Um, so that's not just a claim. Uh, we have access to supposedly specialized care. I'm saying supposedly because I'll show you some data that may raise some concerns there. But if you go to a hospital, if you can go to Tokyo University Hospital, Keio University Hospital, see any specialist you want to see, no problem, right? Um, you may have to wait a bit, but um, you, you, get to, uh, you get that care. Uh, and in fact, yeah, there's no waiting for severe interventions like in other countries where you may have to wait for months, uh, half a year, a year to get an operation done. In Japan, that notion doesn't really exist. You know, waiting, okay, or waiting on the day in the waiting room, yeah, for a few hours, yeah, that you may have to do, but waiting to be treated, actually, no, doesn't, doesn't exist. Um, then there is very little inequality. It really doesn't matter, you know, whether you have money or not. You, you literally get to see the same doctor and you get treated in the same way. In old times, there was maybe a little bit of bribery here and there, but that's, that, I, I wouldn't say that uh, that is anywhere common today. And if you have more money, that actually doesn't really buy you anything other than maybe a sing, you know, the individual room in a hospital, uh, um, but not, not really better, better care. Uh, and, and for all of that, the, you know, the country as a whole pays actually a relatively low proportion of GDP, uh, it's now tending towards 9%, 10% as the GDP is not 
growing or rather shrinking. Um, it used to be around 8%, but that's quite low. You know, Germany is more like 12%, 13%. The U.S. is near 20%. So that's, you know, overall quite cheap and quite nice. Now, um, what, what is not very known in this, you know, supposedly quite public equal system is that actually the provision of care is largely in the hands of private providers. Private, they may not be, you know, companies, but they are Ilyohojins um, uh, that, you know, are run by doctors uh, that know how to extract profit from these operations in a legal and tax-efficient way, and there are many ways of doing that. But, um, you know, most of the system is actually in the hands of private uh, individuals or organizations. So, uh, and that, that is actually quite different from other countries, and even the U.S. that is, has this image of being so highly private actually, in a strict sense, has less private provision of healthcare than, than Japan has, which is very interesting. Now, what does that lead to? Well, it leads to a lot of hospitals, first of all. Um, now, that's not just because it's private, it's, but, but it's because traditionally it's been possible for anyone to basically set up a hospital anywhere they like and to do, also to, to provide any care they like. Uh, and uh, over time, doctors have built out their clinics into hospitals and they have inc increased the hospitals. There have been more and more. So we, in Japan, we have the highest density of hospitals anywhere in the world, by far. Yeah? Uh, people in Germany like to say Germany has too many hospitals, but you know, if you compare this, it's, it's nothing. Right? It's a, yeah. So some, some like uh, Kenji is saying, um, some some of these hospitals, some of the nine thousand hospitals, don't really function as acute um, care hospitals, but um, they have long-term care beds. Uh, but th this number does not include you know, the strict long-term care facilities uh, that are actually being, you know, uh, created or um, uh, there's also an increasing number of rehabilitation hospitals. Uh, now, what do you do with, with these hospitals or what do these hospitals do? Well, they have a lot of beds and they have created a lot of beds and they try to fill these beds as much as possible, because that's, that's how they survive, basically. That's how they make money. So in Japan, if you go to the hospital, you will normally stay in the hospital for an awful long time, you know, on average 14 days. But, you know, depend, you know in, if you include the long-term beds, it actually becomes 20%. All the data, by the way, or the, um, it will be made available, so you don't need to take photos uh, here. Um, and I can also provide more detailed reports. Mm, but, uh, yeah, so a very long uh, stay. And, you know, even I as a patient have, you know, things like a back intervention where in Germany they said, well, if you want to stay overnight, you can stay overnight. In Japan they say, we need you for a week in the hospital, right? Uh, uh, and and th there are many, many, many examples where everything gets, you know, pushed out. Uh, and um, the interesting thing is Japan actually has a very uneven distribution of hospitals and beds and doctors. The west of Japan is, has an you know, arguably over-provision of them, the reason being that the west of Japan has more universities that produce medical doctors and they like to settle where they train uh, than the east. Uh, so here you can see the difference in the, in the, in the bed penetration. Uh, you can do the same thing with doc number of doctors or nurses. But uh, every bed still gets used about the sa at the same rate, no matter where you are. You know? um, so it's really supply creates demand. Um, if there's a bed to be filled, it better be filled. Uh, and now behind that, the, the really good hospitals have a higher turnover. They all fill the bed, they release the patients quickly and uh, find, uh, get new patients that really need to be treated. The bad hospitals keep just the same patient for a much longer period. And, uh, and you know, the, 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 the financial system behind that is created in a way that if you don't do that, actually a lot of hospitals would just go completely bust because that's how they survive. They don't survive so much on 
being paid for the actual treatment. They do too, of course, but um, the, uh, the payment for the day that you stay in bed uh, is important. Now, of course, the government doesn't like this, so they have over, they have over time uh, introduced a system where the longer you stay, the less you're paid as a hospital. But that is still not hard enough to actually disincentivize you know, hospitals from keeping the beds occupied when they have the beds. Also, the, the government has said, because of that problem, we don't allow hospitals to create new beds. So you, you, you have to trade beds for beds. But the problem, of course, with that is the good hospitals that actually maybe deserve to create more beds and do better treatment, they can't do that. Uh, unless they buy up a, a bad hospital, basically, and merge it. And there are all sorts of barriers to doing that. Um, now, the other problem is, um, is, it's not just in the hospitals, it's actually the, the frequency of going to see doctors in hospitals or in clinics. Japan, again, has a world record here, the highest number of consultations in the world. Uh, again, this is created by a system that basically incentivizes the doctor to see the patient as frequently as possible because they get paid for every visit, uh, for everything they do, while other countries have moved to capitation systems or fee for certain durations or patient systems, but Japan hasn't. Uh, and so you get basically doctors being very busy by waving patients in and out their office every few minutes rather than focusing on any one of them in particular and doing something uh, specialized. Uh, and um, this has created a financially perverse system where actually the GP who sees the largest number of patients for the least amount of time earns the most money. Uh, so in Japan, um, it's on average more lucrative to set up your own clinic and uh, see as many patients as possible rather than becoming a highly specialized doctor in a, in a hospital. Uh, I know, for example, of um, you know, a friend's wife is a pediatrician in, in the Osaka area. Pediatricians around the world are normally not paid that well because actually it's a relatively simple job, you know, you see the children, you, most of them don't have actually particular severe ailments. Uh, but uh, th this lady makes a million dollars a year by basically seeing 100 to 200 patients a day. While the university professor, Kenji, uh, not included, but uh, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the medical doctor who is treating in the university will make a fraction of that amount unless they do research that is maybe paid by grants and, and they earn other money in other ways. But nowhere, they, they can in no, in a way, legal way get to anywhere near a million. So, um, therefore, maybe, uh, it's not surprising that uh, the aspiration of many doctors is to open their own clinic. So they start out in a hospital and a university, but over time they move to their own clinics. So the, 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 the most experienced doctors don't stay where they would be in a way most needed. Uh, and so the system doesn't create uh, real specialization. Is people call themselves specialists in hospitals and in clinics, but they aren't really specialists in the sense of uh, specialists in other countries, at least to a large extent. Uh, now, what does it lead to? Well, it actually doesn't lead to the best care. Uh, and uh, here, here, here's, this is just an example, a heart infarct. Um, Japan has a quite low incidence, so the chance that you get a heart attack in Japan is very low, lower than probably in any other country of the world. I would argue that's not because the treatment uh, before that is good, but because people live healthily, like uh, Dr. Waldenberger was saying in the beginning. Uh, good lifestyle leads to still good health and low incidence of disease, including heart, in fact. The, the problem is, if you have a heart attack in Japan, your chance of dying on it is much higher than elsewhere. Well, and then doctors in Japan like to react like... like in Sure, but that's, uh, this is not a perfect apple-for-apple apple comparison, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a comparison that, um, um, that, that draws from the, the macro data. You know, the reasons for that, um, why you ha die if you have an, 
a heart attack in Japan may be related to the fact that maybe up to the incidence you have not been treated adequately. It may, may be that when you have the heart attack, heart attack, you are not being treated adequately. I suspect it is actually both because I've seen the data for you know, uh, patients with hypercholesteremia or um, you know, high blood pressure not being treated as much to goal as they are in other countries. So they're, therefore they're left with actually more risks of having attacks. Uh, but I also know that um, the emergency care in Japan is deficient. Um, you know, it's, it's a gamble basically when you have uh, emergency care whether the ambulance will find you the right hospital in as quickly as a time that they need and that hospital actually undertakes the right intervention. Um, now th th this is now data about from Jap Japan again and other countries about actual heart interventions so this may be after you had a heart infarct, it may be actually before you have a heart infarct. The data doesn't s separate that. Uh, what you can see here is that um, in Japan there are far more facilities that do these kind of pretty severe interventions than in the rest of the world, and therefore the caseload per facility is quite low. Uh, normally you say globally if a doctor doesn't do something 100 times a year, that you know, creates some risks about you know, be having really the expertise to, to avoid uh, having some trouble. Here, here we're having barely 100 per hospital, let alone doctor, uh, in the case of you know, PCI and even less for the more severe bypass grafting. Uh, and uh, this is Japanese data, um, which then shows that maybe not surprisingly, the mortality is very different by, by the caseload in Japanese hospitals. So only those hospitals that actually um, have a large number of uh, interventions have a low mortality rate, um, uh, while those that have insufficient number have a higher one. Japanese doctors will tell you, well, but you know, 3.4% is still great by global standards. And it is. It is actually true. Uh, so you can say that uh, you know, even where there are relatively few interventions, Japanese doctors, maybe because they are well-trained, diligent, uh, do a good job, uh, treat their patients better. But you know, do I want to be one of the 2% of patients who died here? when I could have survived if I had gone to a facility in Japan that actually has more case, you know, of course I, wa I want to survive, you know, even if the difference is only two out of a hundred people. Uh, the fact that other countries may be implicitly killing more people is not, not, not a consolidation that, you know, this is done in the right way. Uh, you know, this is um, similar with stroke. Uh, the, the, the data is maybe a bit, a bit hard to see. This is the number of patients that a hospital uh, treated on stroke uh, per year. Uh, and this is the mortality rate within f 24 hours. So how many of them died within 24 hours of making it to the hospital? And you can clearly see there's a strong correlation. This part is cut out here by the ministry because they don't want to publish this data. But you basically have to imagine that the dots, co of course, continue here as well. But you can clearly see that the, the bigger the, the caseload of that hospital, the more stroke patients they see per year, you know, the lower the mortality rate uh, in, in total is. So the biggest in the biggest places, your chance of dying within 24 hours is only 1%. That's not, that's not bad. But you know, in smaller places, it's six times that amount, uh, uh, or up to six times that amount. And, and that's clearly uh, a, a problem of um, whether the patients are brought to the right places, whether they are brought to stroke centers, as they should be, uh, or whether they end up somewhere else. In Hiroshima, we actually... Um, looked at that specifically for the prefecture because there are hundreds of places that treat a stroke even though in a way from a distance point of view three hospitals would be sufficient uh, and the, the time to hospital would hardly be much different. Um, so that, that gives you an idea of the you know, quality issues. Um, uh, other issues are uh, the, f the funding, and I said I wouldn't talk much about it, but let me still mention it. Um, <clears throat> basically, we, we have a system that relies on 
controlling the cost of care, the price of care that is paid to doctors and that is paid also to others like pharma companies, um, uh, where the government basically tries to limit the increase in spend by controlling the prices, rather than controlling actually the effectiveness of the care that's being provided, um, as is the case in other countries. We, we do have also a worsening shortage of distribution of the, the doctors, uh, especially rural areas really struggle with that. Now you can say some of that is because rural areas try to have more hospitals than they really should have, and that is certainly also true. Uh, but there is clearly also a big difference between, say, Saitama, Chiba, and Tokyo, uh, because doctors like to be in Tokyo and not in Saitama and Chiba, even though there is a lot of population there and there are actually hospitals that really have, have a need. Mm, but there is no system for allocating doctors across the country. Um, you, you, you become a doctor where you like. You know, the hospital can employ as many doctors as they like. There is no, there's no restriction and there is no coordination on this. The same thing between specialties. So there are specialties like anesthesia uh, and obstetrics that are actually short of doctors, but the system doesn't really funnel doctors into their TAs that have the highest need. Uh, emergency care is a big problem too, and in particular in Tokyo. So, you know, if you have an accident, don't have it in Tokyo, because here uh, hospitals like to point the finger at others and say, you know, we don't have capacity to take an pa emergency patient now. There are so many other hospitals, they must be able to do it. On the countryside, they do a better job in coordinating and taking responsibility for that. Uh, uh, then the, the lack of access to newest technologies, this is improving because the government has to make the biggest progress on uh, and closing down the drug and device lag. But there are still treatments that you cannot get uh, under the reimbursement system. And if you cannot get them under the reimbursement system, you then have to pay privately not only for that particular treatment, but for everything else. Again, the government is loosening that system, so there are, now going, there are exceptions. The hospital can apply for exceptions, but that takes time. Not everybody does it. Not everybody knows it. So it, it, there are still issues there. And the last point actually is, is a bit ironic uh, because Japan prides itself of having this universal healthcare system that everybody is meant to be part of, but actually there are 10 million people who don't pay into it uh, and who are therefore not insured. So it's not only the US that has a big or had a big uninsured problem, but Japan has it too. It doesn't become a big topic in Japan because if you're actually in need of a severe treatment, you can pay up for your last two years, get in back into the system and get treated. Uh, so you're not being excluded forever. Um, uh, but uh, it's certainly something that's a problem of the, the system that in the way needs to be addressed. Uh, so summarizing, you know, I, I see, uh, many people see uh, a problem of overusage on, on, on the one end um, that's a problem of incentives that uh, lead doctors or hospitals to provide what actually strictly may not be needed. And that's uh, because of financial incentives, but it's also because uh, the government has no mechanism of controlling um, the supply and controlling the, the quality and has not effectively delegated that to other stakeholders to do that. Um, pricing is not value-based yet, so that also leads to perverse uh, pricing for certain things. And overall, the, the financing of the system that very much relies actually on tax contributions, not only the, the, the payments into the insurance and the co-pays, um, you know, fa faces basically a big funding challenge over the next uh, few decades. Uh, yeah, I, I leave it with that and hand over exactly at the, the hour to Kenji to take this up and tell us about, um, yeah, uh, well, the, la the last slide is just um, uh, some high-level lessons learned. Um, uh, you know, for me, le lesson one is healthcare or good health depends a lot also on how people live and uh, what the country or what the, uh, what the population does to them. It's not just about the healthcare. Um, and and uh, 
you know, access to healthcare is important for early detection, that's good, but you also then need to be able to do something with that and, and provide the right treatment. Uh, and the division of roles in the system is very important for that, and that, that's something that Japan is struggling with. Uh, and it's struggling with that because actually the political leadership on this topic has been weak. You can say it's been weak maybe because the attention of the population overall has not been very high on this topic. That, you know, there were times when people were demonstrating in front of the ministry about access to cancer care. That problem was kind of solved, and overall... This is not a very uh, top, a topic on the on the political agenda of uh, many leaders. Okay, so good evening, everyone. My name is Kenji Shibuya from the University of Tokyo. So, uh, Lulu has nicely summarized the key issues, the challenges we are facing um, today. I have a couple of issues now, <laughs> but uh, I'd like to leave it to the end of. of a discussion for Q&A. But basically what he summarized is that the, you know, the, the Japanese healthcare is characterized by uh, laissez-faire provision of services. So you know, doctors can provide and they can claim any specialties uh, without much uh, medical accreditation. It's changing, but the doctors can say even they are doing uh, surgery at the university hospital, when they open up the clinic, they can claim that they are doing internal medicine, for example. So, less affair, uh, medical services on one hand, and on the other hand, there is a very strict, tight price control, basically uh, user, user fee schedule, based on user fee schedule, which is the single price for uh, the same intervention for everybody, regardless of the insurance plan, regardless of the who provides the care, so that's the trick. So obviously, um, price is not reflecting any market forces. Therefore, it's obvious that there is a demand and supply mismatch. So that's what he talks about. And there are three issues in healthcare, cost, access, and quality, two of which can be easily tackled. So Japan achieved cost containment through user fee schedule. And access is ensured by universal health coverage but quality is suffering. So meeting all three is very hard to do, everywhere. So that's basically what he describes. So what I'm going to talk is uh, future of Japan healthcare. I don't, I'm not a fortune teller, but I was uh, asked by health minister, yes, yes, she was like to chair the panel uh, to develop the two, the strategy for the vision for the next two decades. So basically, I'm the chair of the panel sounds very good, but basically, I was just a housekeeper of the process. So I'd like to share a little bit about what we did. But before doing so, um, in the pharmaceutical industry or healthcare industry, there is a big problem so, you know, in the medical, not just the medical journals, but on the newspaper. And the healthcare pharmaceutical industry is, at, you know, we have a big problem, lack of confidence, and problem with failure in governance. Uh, you know, series of research misconduct and the corporate governance failure. Very, very common right now. But sounds like, you know, looks like it's a deja vu to me because 20 years ago, in the 90s, we had a serious problem in the financial sector. You know, the financial sector was highly regulated and by the Ministry of Finance, and particularly banking. So we have so many bank, banks or region, uh, local banks or you know, so but we have a big problem. You know, all the banks and also security companies. We have this kind of uh, public outcry for the changes. So the Japanese government introduced so-called financial big bang in 1996, exactly 20 years ago. So they opened up the financial sector on the basis of three principles: uh, one is free market, the second is a fair market, the final global market. So with these three principles, they open up the market. Now, how many banks do we have, big banks? Previously, we have so many banks. Nearly 100? I don't remember. But today, Japanese me mega banks, we only have three, four? I don't remember. Right now, pharmaceutical companies here in Japan, including small ones, we have nearly 80, over 80. I'm not quite sure in five years, 10 years, but that kind of same process is happening right now. So the point here is, 
the health sector is really under tension with the forces of globalization and market forces. And what he described about the success, to some extent, over the past 50 years, uh, is seriously under challenged by not only by aging, but also changing values and views of the patient and diverse, uh, diversity in terms of needs. So um, this is what we have right now, we're facing. So I was asked to chair this Japan 2035 uh, panel by health minister. And I didn't know him. Uh, some, some people say, oh, you have a cross tie with him. No, no, no. So just before the launch, uh, launch of this advisor panel in April last year, he called me up and uh, he asked me. So I heard your name. So I'd like to I'd like ask you to be a chair of this panel. So I asked him because I, I had never, you know, he, his introduction is wrong. I was not in charge of this process. I had never worked with this kind of stuff. I often decline to join the government committee because major, most of the committees are already set by the bureaucrats, you know, including you know, the, the role of chair sometimes, just read a transcript written by the bureaucrats. So I said, if that's the case, I, you know, thanks for offering me this great uh, opportunity, but i like to decline the offer if that's the case. He said no. This is serious stuff. This is, there is no hidden agenda. There is no existing um, you know, scenarios. So, so if that's the case, I, I'm happy to do this. Instead, I asked him three conditions because he was thinking about 20-year uh, um, vision. So I said, usually the government committees uh, consisting of established professors, you know, aging around 65 <laughs> or something, after 20 years, they are gone. I'm not saying they, they, are, they, are, they are dead, but they are still um, you know, thinking about considering Japanese life expectancy, they are still alive. But if you really think about 20 year vision, I'd like to invite people who are still active in the system, even after 20 years, i.e., I'd like to invite the young next generation leaders aged from 20 to 40 who should be active after 20 years. That's my first request. Secondly, the government committees are usually consisting of the external expert so that the bureaucrats can make an excuse because they are saying this, we have to do this, right? But most of the issues are already uh, identified the bureaucrats. They, are very, they know much of the stuff and they know the limitations because you know, they are working on the basis of silos or political limitations. So therefore, I'd like to hear from them what are the issues, why they cannot do this kind of stuff, even though they know that this should be done, but they cannot do it because of a bunch of political issues or past um, silos or bureaucratic fragmentation. So I, I said to the minister, I'd like to have a, uh, in, internal folks within the member, not just the external expert. So he said, okay, I'll try to identify several uh, bureaucrats, young bureaucrats. And finally, I asked him to invite as many women as possible because healthcare is not for men. <laughs> you know, the government committee in Japan is mostly um, uh, dominated by men. Uh, Oji-san, old men, but uh, healthcare should be close to the daily life and we need a view. Uh, we, need, we really need a diverse view. So in, in the end, he, I, I didn't pick the membership, but he, this is the member. And average age was around 43. I don't think it's too young, but partly because of me. But uh, other people are uh, aged from 30 to 40. And diverse background, including um, entrepreneurs, civil society members, doctors, community people. So it's a good mixture of people. Four members from the ministry, and we took uh, five or six references, um, most of which are pretty consistent. So I'm very impressed that people are just looking who will be the next readers within the ministry. And heavyweight supported as advisor, including the president of the Japan Medical Association. The part of the reason why GPs are so rich is that because of the political power of JMA. 
So user fees are heavily skewed to pay more to the GPs rather than hospital professors. But JMA, um, you know, president was very supportive. So before starting this um, advisor panel, I personally uh, met with him. So I told him that probably this report will challenge the JMA policies. But this is for the next 20 years. So this is not for now. So could you be a big boy to give us advice? And he said, okay. Seriously, he was very, very uh, supportive. Because this is for the 20-year vision, I'm very happy to support. I'm trying to block any criticism, any comments from the members. So I was very, very, um, you know, I really appreciate his support. Finally, uh, we often report to the Prime Minister on the process. And I was very surprised again how uh, knowledgeable he is about healthcare. And surprisingly, uh, the ministry, the cabinet, and uh, prime minister, and also Japan Medical Association, the top levels, they are pretty consistent about the direction. So we, we propose the big visions. But in terms of direction, all the stakeholders are pretty much consistent. That really uh, surprised me. Of course, each you know, details, some of the, you know, the agendas, of course, there are conflicting issues. But in terms of direction, visions, um, three uh, major stakeholders are pretty much consistent. So what we did, um, Healthcare 2035, is not just, it is for the advisory, it is an advisory committee for the health minister. But basically what we proposed was this, healthcare system built for the next 20 years and designed for all lifestyles and people. So we like to shift the focus from just health care to social system. Social system includes, I, I, I'm going to um, just skip this. Um, social system is this. Um, this is uh, the slides I borrowed from Yoshi Okoyama, who was an ex-Makinze. And we discussed about this uh, for a long period of time. But social system is basically uh, this. So usually we look at medicine, but from now on, because the Japanese government is now pushing the integrated community-based services, because of people, the most, most of the people we have some conditions such as hypertension, diabetes, or we, have, we see more uh, demand, people with dementia. But you don't have to deal with these people at the hospitals. So community-based care will be the key. But then that's, that is not necessarily the classic health care. It is about their life, their working style their living condition, or even how to finance their services, insurance. So it will go, be, it will go beyond the classic healthcare to finance, information technology, housing, everything will be a health system. So we would like to propose some kind of transformation of health sector into social system. So why this is so important? It is also related to globalization. The most accurate issue for everyone, why has finance sector, money, was the first to be globalized? Because it is most important to you in daily life. And it, it is not so dependent on values, social values. It is, you know, but it is related to technology. If you have a banking system, it, it, it transcends national boundary quickly. It does apply to uh, ICT technologies. You don't need buyers. You just need uh, this kind of stuff everywhere. So this kind of social system will go first. So that happens 20 years ago. IT transformation, finance sector. In the case of Japan, financial big bang in 1996. So now here we are seeing the globalization of healthcare system, education system, basic services. So this comes first in terms of globalization, and then moving on to this. Registration is very, very the least sector to be globalized. So we are seeing the globalization of this sector right now. So what we did was financial big bang, three principles. 2035, we proposed three visions. So basically, as you said, value-based service, and secondly, from cure to care, and the final global perspective. 
simple three visions. I'm going to explain a little bit about uh, each vision for the next 10 minutes. So this is a simplified summary of what we propose. Very simple. This has been, and this has been repeatedly mentioned so many times everywhere. But the important thing is to put this message on the official document of the Ministry of Health. It was the first time for the ministry to publish this kind of message. Because until even now, the major concern of the Ministry of Health, but behind the Ministry of Finance, is cost containment. They don't think much about quality or efficiency. But, but now we are proposing value-based service as a fundamental issue for the health, to develop the next vision of healthcare. And also, the, you, know, you, you developed the health, uh, social insurance scheme. Bismarck uh, developed the social insurance scheme. The, the philosophy behind was that so if you get sick, you should be cured to, be, to contribute to economic growth or you know, national security. But these days, because of the aging uh, or health transition, many people are having disease which will not be cured, dementia, even hypertension. So the purpose of insurance will be, has been changed. It's not cure. It is how to care or even how to die. You know, we need to have a different perspective about social insurance or even social security. Finally, global, we cannot escape from the global influence in the healthcare. Think about the Ebola or the MERS or Chika virus in terms of health security, not just uh, infectious disease, but risk, risk transfer and other types of risks. Everywhere um, there's a influence of globalization. So this is a simplified summary of our um, vision. So as a chair, I complete, uh, repeatedly asked the four questions listed here. You know, so a simple question. One is, what existing policies should be strengthened? So we are doing this, but we have to strengthen more. Secondly, what key issues have been repeatedly sidelined due to politics? You know, I got, we got a very, very exciting discussion from the members from the Ministry of Health as well. And thirdly, what should we discuss now to kickstart future public debate? And finally, about the global perspective. So this is a kind of paradigm shift which we propose in the report. So from quantity to quality, from inputs to value. So the control knob of the Japanese health care policy was primarily driven by inputs. That is, the number of beds and number of doctors at hospitals or within the prefecture. But now we are trying to shift to the barriers. It is not to ensure the number of doctors and number of beds. It is about outcome and barriers. And also from highly central regulation to autonomy of the professional society. There is a very, very good uh, movement among the professional society, particularly, for example, the surgeons. Surgeons are creating their own database which is, to me is one of the best. They copied the US system, but now they exceeded the quality and the content. Now 95% of the surgeons are registered, including what kind of procedure was done, what was the outcome, everything is linked. That cannot, you know, you present the DPC data set, but this is only for uh, processes. So they, they don't, there is no link to, link, link to data on process and diagnosis and outcome. So surgeons have created their own database to link all the information. And it's easy to figure out, even for the cabbage, uh, coronary artery bypass graft surgery, there's a four-time difference in terms of survival across prefecture. It's huge. And as you, you are absolutely right. When the um, number of cases per uh, cardiac surgeon exceed 40 per year, then the outcome will be totally different. So that kind of data is easily done. So it's changing. The surgeon did by themselves to improve the, um, their capacity. So we encourage the autonomy of the professional society to improve their own performance. And again, cure to care, 
and fragmentation integration. So that is our fundamental message to, in this report. And again, this has been repeatedly mentioned so many times. Everyone knows, and people say, oh, this is not, there's nothing new. That's not the point. Again, this, this kind of paradigm shift was clearly mentioned in the official report of the ministry. That was most important. So initially, the ministry and top-ranking officials, they are very skeptical of what these young people, young kids are doing this. And you know, the minister is changed. This report will be changed. It will be gone. That was their impression at the beginning. And I went to see each you know, head of the unit's department. And initially, they were very skeptical. And they were sarcastic and kind of ironical. But after the talk, I did this face-to-face -face meeting of nearly 25 heads of department twice. And at the beginning, they were very skeptical. But after a couple of iterations, they were very, very into it. Because there was a very limited opportunity for them to talk about this kind of issue openly. And this is exactly what they have been thinking about. But they couldn't do it because of the silos and because of political influences. So they are very happy to open up what, you know, in the end they said, yeah, I could have done this a long time ago. So uh, in the end, they have been very, very supportive. So this is a simplified <laughs> diagram of our report. So goal is a goal. So this is to provide sustainable blah, blah, blah. But our point is not this, uh, about, it's not the financing. Again, it is, our proposal is to transform the way the health system is planned and delivered. So usually when we talk about health system reform, the majority of the discussion is about how to finance it. It is, you know, this is because people will try to stick with the existing system. But our, our reporter is not trying to do this. Because if you stick with the system, the only choices are simple. De decrease the benefit and increase your contribution. Or throw premiums or tax, whatever that is. Or find out another source of money. And that's the usual you know, story. So instead, we propose the transformation of how the healthcare is delivered. So again, lean healthcare, it is implemented by based healthcare. And life design is to empower society and support personal choice. So more information, more choices, more options for each individual. But we should also think about social determinants. Because if we insist the personal choice and the personal modification of health behavior, it doesn't work. You know, for the past three decades, it was clearly shown that just changing individual behavior doesn't work. We need community support. So social determinant matters. The final global perspective. So three visions, simplified visions. And infrastructure, these are basic infrastructure to support this vision. So I will show you some example. This is a slide um, presented by one of the members who, is, uh, who often appears on NHK's Dr. G, uh, who is a star uh, GP. And he presents this is a very, very um, common case these days. This is an 85-year-old man who lost consciousness with uh, some diarrhea, Parkinsonism. And after um, examining and also taking history from the family members, uh, it turned out he got 15 drugs, including mental, uh, you know, psych psycho, some sort of drugs from five GPs. And what is the treatment? Stop the drugs. <laughs> after two days, he started eating again, and he went home by walk. So these two slides show the fundamental problems of the Japanese healthcare, as he described. Easy access, and each GP didn't check what, he was, what kind of drugs were given to him, and it's all paid by insurance. So this kind of overdiagnosis, overtreatment, is becoming very, very common. Um, just two slides. So implication, again, Value-based healthcare, so we are proposing cost-effective integrated package of services. And secondly, from cure to care. So focus is not just drugs, but drugs for cure, but diagnostics, preventive services, and other health-promoting goods and services, most of which are not covered by insurance right now. 
Germany is, you know, some insurance scheme for prevention. We don't have it. The, the worst thing is about dentistry here. Unless you have a cavity, insurance cannot pay for it. So there is no incentive for preventive services. Global perspective, um, we will have a G7 next week. And one of the major agenda items is health. And the Prime Minister is really pushing to, for the Japanese leadership to tackle the health security this time. So you will see the news very soon. So next steps. Initially, lots of people in the bureau, bureaucracy, ministry, thought, oh, this is just two decades, blah, 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 you know, just a visionary paper. And again, once the minister is gone, it will be gone. But surprisingly, health minister survived the next, last reshuffle. And he, uh, I, he asked the top officials to identify all the action items in, written in this report, um, total 121, and asked each unit to classify into three. So they are very surprised because you know, this is not for now, but now the minister is asking the action items. And he asked each head of the department to classify each action point into three, do immediately, discuss and plan now with a concrete time, time plan. And finally, if by all means, it is not possible, then show him the alternatives. It was very tough. So, you know, all departments come up with some timelines with clear plans, and there were three, two or three review committee on, in terms of progress. So right now, 2035 is becoming a milestone on the ministry policy making process right now. And finally, we wrote in this report, this is really, you know, usually the report is written by the bureaucrats, but we wrote by ourselves. Particularly the secretariat, uh, consisting of both public sector and private sector, we did it, uh, you know, by ourselves. So in the end, we wrote, in making suggestions looking two decades ahead, some proposals and examples of policy will arose debate. And we welcome feedback and criticism on this report and hope that it will be, start, it will be the start of national debate. We are sure that debate in itself will be the first step toward a brighter future. And this is exactly, I think, the policy of DIJ. And that's our final message in the report. So thank you very much.